0: Awesome, welcome to the Into the Verse podcast. Um, today's episode is an interview episode. The first one where we're actually interviewing someone else rather than one of us. Um, and it's gonna be with Parth Troper, a good friend of mine. He's a rising senior at UC Berkeley. I think that's how you say it, right? That's how the Americans like to like to call themselves? Yeah,
1: yeah, we love to say that. Rising senior, you got it.
0: Awesome, okay. So uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about his experiences at an American university, uh, a little bit about his work experiences. He's uh, a fellow intern with me at Twitter this summer and some of the stuff he's interested in. So we hope you enjoy the conversation and I guess uh, we'll see you on the flip side.
2: So welcome back young kings young queens it's the into the adult verse experience uh, yeah we have Parth here with us in the studio today and I mean like we've had the pleasure of talking for a bit um, in kind of prepping for this podcast and it's a pretty uh, interesting guy to say the least <laughs> <laughs> um, so as Fouad has told me you went to a Canadian um, high school prior to attending your undergrad at UC Berkeley, which is of course in the States. And I know that there's a bunch of people who are really interested in that transition. You know, the schools in the States tend to be um, the pinnacle of higher education as reflecting their rankings. So how about you tell us a bit about your background, um, what you study and that process of getting into Berkeley?
1: Of course, yeah. So um, yeah, like you mentioned, I... Did go to a Canadian high school. I actually was uh, raised in Canada. I grew up in Scarborough, uh, hey, and then I moved. <laughs> oh, GTA. Sorry. And then I, uh, and then I moved to uh, moved to Vaughan for my like secondary education and stuff. So I went to Bayview High School. If any of you guys have heard of that, uh, it's in Richmond Hill. So yeah, I think I think you put it well. I think you know American universities are regarded as this sort of. Like you know, like un- like it's so high achieving. Like you have to be like top notch, like all these kind of stuff. But I, I feel like Ooh, okay, um, okay, now okay. that I've, Relax. no, no, no <laughs> I was just gonna say like now that I've, uh, now totally that I've gone okay. to, I, I can tell you like it's, it's not anything like that. I think that anyone has, you know, it's anyone can have the uh, ability to do that. It's, it's more just like what your interests are and like what you're trying to gain from your. Uh, from your university experience, I think and he's know?
0: modest too, guys. So I came in with and the and flex. <laughs> he came in the fl- Oh,
1: and you're single. Jeez. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right, sorry. Continue. Uh, we gotta um, huckle you a little bit, you know, first guys. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't blame you guys, but <laughs> but yeah, no. I think um, it was great. I think the high high school for me was um, to say the least it was pretty challenging. I uh, I was in the IB program, so I guess like that was uh, sort of a kind of a good indicator of what like they say it's like a good indicator of what college should be like um i think in terms of like rigor and like work it was definitely up mm-hmm. there um but it it in terms of like classwork and stuff i would say like i was pretty busy in high school and i tried to sort of like stay on top of my grades and whatnot um but yeah i think it prepared me well for berkeley and i really love you know love my time here now so mm. so what are you uh, studying right now yeah, so I'm actually an electrical engineering and computer science major. Uh, we like to call it Eeks. So yeah. Eeks. <laughs> we call it E C E here, I think in Canada, but Oh, I see, yeah, yeah. I've heard that one too. Right. So So what and then
2: Oh, I see yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so I was gonna ask you, you're you're in Eeks, but um, you're kinda like, you know, doing a software engineering internship this summer. Um, so walk us through kind of like uh, a little bit about, like, kind of your professional journey as well. So, like, you you know, you, you're you studying EECS, but you're working as a software engineer. And then I know you're also interested in, like, data science a little bit. So, yeah, walk us mm-hmm. through a little bit of that.
1: Sure, yeah. Actually, so in high school, interestingly, I had never written a line of code. I actually didn't even really know what computer science was. And then just, like, you know, people use it to make stuff and, like, code and stuff. But I think I was, I was drawn to it because I loved math. So, like, that was a big thing for me in high school as well, just, like, that passion for that, I used to do a bunch of contests and whatnot, but um, but yeah. So Eeks was like something that I, I thought would be a great application for me to like transition to, mm-hmm. um, and luckily it was. You know, like I, I sort of fell in love with it when I came to Berkeley. Um, so in terms of like the different interests that you were just saying, like I think like once I learned the fundamentals of like computer science and whatnot, I wanted to mm-hmm. see like where it could really kind of go, like in terms of um, the different applications. I feel like people have this image of CS as like people like just sitting in their rooms like typing in code on their laptops you know like not For eating sure. or like you know so I, I was like I want to see what it was really like about it. and like I, I sort of like came across things like you know like software engineering is one of the great applications of a data science um, you can even do research and stuff so I think yeah like, I, I love data science I think it's really cool I'm like really big into sort of um, playing around with data and like seeing if we can like extrapolate or like see any cool trends in it um, I mean Twitter's like a company with a shit ton of data, so yeah, it, for sure. it's a great place to be, but but yeah, you know, so that's sort of how I got into it. Um, software engineering, I think, was a great way, I, I think, is a great way for me to, um, I guess, apply what I've learned in a way that's kind of hands on, you know, like mm-hmm. you work on something for a while and like you see kind of built up and like you contribute to a larger code base, it's like it's a little more challenging than, like writing scripts on your computer, so. Sure. I want to see what that would be like as well. So
0: yeah, definitely for you on like the the difference between like software engineering versus just like coding by yourself, or like even coding for research. And that was like a big thing for me, like going into industry and then realizing that like code I had written at the hospital like the year before when I did my internship was like completely different. There's like completely different considerations like DevOps and like pipelines and all this sort of stuff.
1: But yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't want to bore with the details, but you you got it exactly. It's like you know, it's much more different and. It's much more sort of like hands on. You do a lot of stuff, and it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. So mm-hmm, for sure. So
2: like with um, I'm curious. So like, I'm um, did most of your friends pursue post secondary education here in Canada as well? And yeah. So, oh, sorry. And just like uh, I, I was follow just... up to that too. Before you answer that, um, did any of yeah. them pursue um, a similar
1: degree as well over here? Okay. So um, my friends in high school, I think we were like. We were kind of like a, an ambitious group. Like, we liked to, we were talking about like American schools, like just growing up and stuff. Love so, um, one of my good friends actually ended up going to Wharton. Um, he's in like the Huntsman dual degree program. Nice, um, yeah. One of my friends ended up going to Oxford Damn. for to study chemistry. And then um, the other two stayed in Canada. Uh, you know, one of them studying uh, global poli- public policy at Uni- University of Toronto. And the other one is doing, he's gone to med school at McMaster. Nice. So, yeah. So, you know, a gr- great friend group to be around. I feel like they motivated me a lot, but in terms of our different like ambitions and passions, I don't think any of us kind of overlapped. We all just kind of went in separate directions and, mm. you know, it's, it's really fun to come back home and talk to them now. Cause it's like, you can see how much we've all changed in our like interests and stuff, but our like core, you know, that like our, our personalities and stuff never changed. So it's like. It's That's fun.
2: awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys have an elite group of friends right now. What the heck? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: it's so they cool were... too.
0: Cause like having the diverse interests is like I think that you know I love my group of friends and I think they're super super ambitious. But like one thing is that we're all like engineering students mm-hmm. and like oh okay yeah like yeah. my current group of friends and like we're, we're we're like super tight. But I feel like. To an extent, um, some of our life experiences are like super similar versus like when you guys come together. I feel like, you know, like this guy's like, I just cut up a cadaver. Like, you know, it's completely <laughs> different from what you're doing at Twitter. Exactly, like bro. One of, cool friends, so, yeah. Yeah, one
1: of my friends. Yeah. One I was talking to my friend who's going to med school, and this time back, he's like, he's actually working on uh, helping out like a lot of frontline workers with the COVID 19 crisis. And so awesome. he's doing a lot of cool stuff. He's like, he's working on a product right now that's like, um, you know, uh, like distributing PPE to a bunch of different hospitals and stuff. So I was like, damn, like, that's some cool stuff, man. Like it's it's not like what I'm doing, like I'm out here like, you know, writing stuff on my computer and like my other friends are out here like making money mm. with like with for banks and stuff. So it's like <laughs> so it's just like a bunch of yeah, you're you're right. Like a bunch of different interests. It keeps things interesting, you know. It's like you're not coming back to hear the same stuff you hear at college. That's, that's sure.
2: I'm super jealous about that. I mean, that's I mean, diversity tends to be the this like crucible where great ideas are formed. Um having the, all mm. those different POVs are is super valuable um so i'm like happy to hear that from you but just i just wanted to dive a bit into the difference between these like u.s schools versus like these canadian schools right because i mean even just gauging like my myself and fwad's reaction to hearing like while where all your friends went like we were pretty stunned like dan this guy's going to wharton oxford all this for sure um the reputation does definitely precede these schools so are you, I don't know if you know anybody else that were, that's kind of doing like a similar degree to you here in Canada, like personally where you've had a chat about it, but where do you think that U.S. schools are, yeah, what domain do you think U.S. schools do better than Canadian schools do when it comes to delivering this education?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very fair question. Um, I think in terms of education quality and like the things that you learn, I don't want to say that American schools are too ahead I think that Canadian schools are actually pretty much on par with in terms of like what you learn and the things that you know you can do with the knowledge as well I think the biggest thing that I or sort of like I've, I've talked to my Canadian friends as well and like talked about their seen their experiences and stuff I think the biggest thing that I've noticed the differences in, in terms of like the level of like connections that you can see, or like at least like be exposed to, at an American school, mm-hmm. uh, the alumni network, as well as like the degree of like opportunities that people have. Um, I think like a, a lot of American schools are like super duper like um, like really well connected, especially if you're in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, like schools like Berkeley have really great connections with Silicon Valley, a lot of investors, um, a lot of like super cool people. Like I think Steve Wozniak went to Berkeley, so he like oh, comes comes back and talks a lot he like loves to talk about hardware Mm. so he comes back and speaks to a lot of engineering students so it's like things like that you know it's like i feel like i feel like american schools really shine in terms of like flexing the network and like flexing like things that are a little more intangible than just like knowledge and i think that was the sort of the toss-up that i had to weigh before i decided to come so
0: given that like you know now you've retroactively kind of have this experience do you think it's like kind of a case of hindsight bias like was that going through your head when you were, like, making that decision? Like, when you when you first got your offers as, like, a yeah. high school student, like, what was, like, sort of the number one factor in, like, making you decide to go to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very true, good question. I think, for me, when I got these offers, I mean, the biggest thing, the first thing was, um, like, damn, like, I did it, like, awesome. Like, I'm really Jeez. excited, you know? I was I was, like, I think for me, especially the school I grew up in, like, it was very, like, competitive and cutthroat school. Mm -hmm. um you know like no shade to bayview um all love but it's just like it was just like super competitive and like people were always like trying to like one up one another and that just became Mm. the culture and i feel like that's like not the most i don't know why programs are
0: like that man like my school was very similar we had like a a harvard we had a yale and like it was like super super competitive and stuff but
1: yeah everyone's just trying to like be like yo i'm better than you and it's like hey man like why can't we just like all do like good (laughs) things together i don't know man but Anyways, I think like I was really happy when I when I got the uh, the admission letter and a lot of things really went through my head at the moment. I was like, damn, like you know, like this is awesome and I really want to go and stuff. But then like you get hit with the most practical fact, and that's like, shit, I have to pay the tuition. You know, it's like Ugh. it's like I'm an international kid, like it's out of state tuition. It's like it's ridiculous. I don't even you can like look it up, but it's like it's really not. Um, it's, it's it, when you when you compare it to a Canadian school, it's like, damn, man. Like, Canadian Wait, school for the, looks for the free. benefit
0: of the viewers,
1: um, do you want to just, like, I don't know if you feel comfortable. I
0: can, like yeah, I can, disclo- I can
1: disclose yeah. it. I think tuition for Berkeley for one year, I think tuition only is, I think, around 43,000 American. Whew, whew.
0: Yeah, so for that's comparison, my, my
1: program in Canada is 17K Canadian, which is like, yeah, I think, what, so 14K you can, 50? yeah. Yeah, you can kind of like make that comparison yourself very clearly of like an extremely large difference in terms of pay. But so I was Mm -hmm. like, man, like this is tough. You know, I think for me, like my my second very close option for what I was going to go to was Waterloo. Mm -hmm. I think I wanted I I was uh, I got in for their like BBA CS program. Oh, nice. and yeah. yeah, And I was like I was really excited about that, actually, because I wanted to sort of like explore the. Intersection between business and CS because I was always into like both mm-hmm. so I decided like, you know Like damn like it's, it's kind of a toss-up between these two like on the one hand I have Berkeley, which is like I can go to like this like crazy school in like California the one that you hear about in like movies and stuff and it's like I have the chance to go now and I can like Make all these new friends and like start a completely new like path to my life, you know Like mm-hmm. and it can like it can go really well for me and I'm like it could be a completely different sort of me that I can come out of it versus like me going to a Canadian school Mm -hmm. um you know like a little more comfortable of an environment like coming back home on weekends and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. um you know like it was really tough I think at the end it was just the opportunity cost that really got me I just thought to myself that like shit man like I'm here and it's like I've been given this like golden ticket and like okay Mm -hmm. so I have what like two years to pay off this debt I guess I'll like I'll do it you know it's like you kind of have to make that decision. It's like, do I want to like struggle and like live like a pauper for two years? And it's like, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, like screw it. I'll do it. You know? And so I like just signed it and I said, all right, I love here's it. my statement of intent. I
0: Ooh, love that. It's like screwed and just do it, man. Like
1: yeah, I man. something
0: I super try and live by. Like the, I think there's a, there's a really good quote about it. I forget what the book is from, but um, actually it's from the slight edge. It's a, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it, but um the quote is uh the man who does has all the power and that's it Mm-mm. that's all that matters yeah. you know whoever does the thing has the power and it's like you know nike's kind of co-opted that into like just, just do, do it, it and things like that but super super yeah. that. do you yeah
1: i was just gonna uh, go, Sorry, go ahead no i was just gonna say that i think that's a that's a very great mentality to have like a lot of times like you're sort of like like what should i do right And it's people are like oh should i flip a coin it's like just do what you kind of want to do mm-hmm. like, things will figure themselves out you know, mm-hmm. if you really want something, go for it.
2: Yeah, and just, like, have faith that you can't... Uh, another quote, you know, S- Steve Jobs from um, his commencement address at Stanford, um, and it's one of my favorite... Oh, you can't mention Stanford,
0: though. This guy goes to Berkeley. Right, I know, there's a little <laughs> rivalry there. <though. laughs> like a little bit of a... It's a soft uh, spot. Attention. It's a soft
2: spot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um, for the sake of Steve Jobs, you got to shout him out one time. Um, but he <laughs> said in his commencement address, and I would highly recommend everybody watch it because it is one of the greatest speeches I've ever heard in my life, um, mm-hmm. But he said you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So, you know, just have faith, trust your gut, fate, God, whatever it is, and just keep pushing forward and trust that it'll all work yeah. out in the end. Um,
1: Damn, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. I haven't, I'd never heard that one. That's that's mm-hmm, nice. Right?
2: And I try to live my life by yeah. that because especially with like choices like this um, that you're making, and I think a lot of people make light of the choice that you're to make because they figure like, okay, well, it's between like Waterloo or like Berkeley, right? for most mm-hmm. people they would think like oh this is a no brainer obviously go for berkeley the, the reputation um that will just yeah. they'll set you up for life but there's a lot more mm-hmm. that goes into that choice and i'm sure wait yeah i'm a lot, sure you like lot. you're
1: happy you you with the choice you made right definitely i mean i i look back and i like i think that like 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 food was talking about like i have this sort of hindsight you know like this the mm-hmm. power of hindsight and i can look back and like say like oh like you know the education wasn't that much different but it was the network but like back then in high school i was like like, damn, like, I'm probably going to learn a lot more, you know, like, like it's an elite, <laughs> yeah. it's an elite school, like, I'm going to be learning, like, from the best professors, and to be honest, like, to a certain extent, the idea of, like, learning from, like, the best people is true, because, like, mm-hmm. these really, like, top-level schools are rated a lot based on, like, the research quality that comes out, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, like, the professors at Berkeley, like, genuinely are some of the people who are at the forefront of technology. Like, I think, like, one of the people, like, one of one of my professors, like, I just took a class with him. Like, his name is Scott Schenker. He was one of the, like, big people, big architect behind the internet. He actually, like, helped make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I took a class, like, the internet, like, it was, like, network architecture with him. So, that was really cool.
0: Awesome. Like,
1: things like that, yeah. you know, it's like you're learning from people who have, like, literally built what they're talking about. So mm-hmm. it's, like, things like that, you know, I, I thought would be really, really cool to talk about and, like, look back and, like, tell my kids someday, you know. So I thought it was, like, no, you know, why not? For sure. <laughs> Subtle
2: flex with <for> the kids. <laughs> uh, but, like, yeah. but, like, I, with experiences like that, like, the passion bleeds through, right? Especially when someone has devoted their entire life to building something like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. This. So do you think that the, considering, like, the price, um, do you think the network is worth paying, all like, all that you are?
1: You know that's a that's a hard question because I think that you need to sort of you need to ask yourself like like what do I want to do, mm-hmm. like I think that the the um the way to weigh whether or not a U.S. school is good for you or not, especially as a high school student, is to sort of like I know it's kind of hard because it's like a lot of high school kids don't really have an idea what they want to do. I know I didn't, right? So it's like right. like ask yourself like you know like based on like what I my current interests are like. Do I want to go to this school for this certain degree, and do I think that I will receive a significantly like, significantly more benefits from taking this like path, rather than just taking like a Canadian school or like taking mm-hmm. like a much more like valid path, you know, that wouldn't put as much financial burden on my parents or myself. So in the case of like in my case, it was, you know, like Berkeley is one of the top schools for computer science, mm-hmm. and that's like that's like pretty well known. It's like it's Berkeley, MIT, Stanford, like, tied I think, um, but it's like. Do I want to take these four years and learn from the best of the people or do I want to like, Mm -hmm. you know, stay in Canada and like have a very like awesome education, like pretty much learn the same stuff, but like from like professors who aren't as qualified and like don't have as many like connections to people in Silicon Valley or the Bay Area. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. like in terms of that, it's like look at your own interests, see if your interests align with that school is good at. And if that school's like, um, I guess like acumen and like their strengths align with your interests, then yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, you got to ask yourself those kinds of questions, with especially as a Canadian kid because international kids don't have it easy when it comes to tuition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like schools like Berkeley are pretty ruthless with financial aid and that's one of my biggest beefs with them. I think that they're not very nice at all when it comes to, um, I think private schools are a little more forgiving, like Harvard and like mm-hmm. the Ivy Leagues in general, but public schools don't have that much private funding. So you should ask yourself that question as well, you know?
0: It's kind of ironic because I think we have this picture in Canada of, like, the whole, like, public model where, you know, it should be easier to go to a public school. Uh, but, it, like, at, kind of paradoxically, as an international student, because public schools are publicly funded, they don't have access to the same, like, private wealthy donors that, like, mm-hmm. Harvard and Stanford do. And because of exactly. that, it's actually harder as a low-income student to go to the, one of those schools. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And, and and one of the biggest things that people don't realize about Berkeley is that because it's a it's technically still a school funded by the state of California and mm-hmm. so because it's a public school and so, right, that, so the that means system. that yeah. the uc system and so very naturally they're going to be preferring people who come from the state itself and so they distinguish it by talking about in-state tuition which is so much less than out-of-state tuition it boggles my mind it's like three times mm-hmm. less and like that's yeah, and that versus Canadian prices. <laughs> no, it is. That's what I'm saying. If you're a, if you're a Californian resident and you go to Berkeley, please go. Like that's like that's like not even a question. Like go to Cal. That's a mm-hmm. it's a great school to go to, especially if you're a Californian resident. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, you know, that's the kind, those are the kinds of questions you should be like asking yourself, mm-hmm. especially if it's like if you're really like torn between an American and a Canadian. Interesting. School. So I'm
2: actually curious because like hearing you talk about this and like not to completely paint this um with like rose colored or rose tinted glasses, right? Other than mm-hmm. the obvious financial burden that uh, most would have to assume, are there any reasons or facets you can think of why people should not go to Berkeley or like any one of these schools, right? Like any disincentives that you can think of?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think for, for most people, I would say it's definitely the financial burden, right? It's like, it's like you asking yourself, like, I mean, do I want to graduate debt free? Do I want to graduate and have like pretty much the same job, but like be much more free and like feel much less stress mm-hmm. um, versus like, do I want to go to a school like this, but have a larger network? Like, do you, it depends on what you value, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you value having an, immediate, like a bird in the hand versus two in the bush kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's like, do you want to have immediate results or do you want to sort of invest in something that will sort of show its fruits later? Mm-hmm. And so I guess like, like in terms of dis- dis- disincentives, finances is definitely a big one. Um another big one I would say is like things that you're interested in. I think that like some schools are much more known for like things like social life, Greek life. I know American schools are way more um like you know big on like Greek life and party life in general. Mm-hmm. Um Berkeley being one of them. So I guess like yeah. <laughs> um, Do you want to talk about those
0: experiences maybe? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean I'd love I to. You're I actually a Business
0: frat, right? So.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I was going to say I'm I'm a part of a business fraternity which is like it's not like a social fraternity it's uh it's it's similar in the sense that we have social events but it's mm-hmm. different in the sense that it's um like it's very professionally based in terms of like its core values like they focus a lot more on like helping kids recruit um helping their members like have a really strong network and that's one of the big things i loved about berkeley i think like um like looking back like before i even came i actually did some research on things like my frat like alpha Kappa Psi and like um other frats as well like and i the thing that stood out, stood out to me was like these people in these business frats were like the people who were like work hard, play hard. And that's kind of like what I wanted to be. You know, I, I that was kind of like my mentality growing up as well. Like I was never really a stay at home kind of kid. I love mm-hmm. to talk to people. I love to go out. Um, but I also love to sort of get stuff done and like, you know, like study and like work hard and like do things. So to me, for me to find a group of people who were like literally built on that one sort of, um, that one facet, that one like, idea of like work hard play hard you know do well in school but also like um you know come outside and party with us and hang out and it's like we'll also help you get a network that will help you get a great job that was really appealing to me so that was one of the big factors that i thought about as well you found your tribe and um yeah yeah, no definitely i honestly like i i hate to make it sound like that because it sounds very culty but (laughs) in a certain in a certain sense man like greek life in america is very culty and um i'll get into this a little later too because i ended up like like greek life is like a like a pretty like consistent topic to throughout like my college career and then like i've had like problems with it i've also like kind of enjoyed that's why like i don't like to consider um i kind of kind of of like to call my thing an organization not like a frat because it sounds very (laughs) i don't want to like associate it yeah there's definitely like a certain
0: connotation when people say yeah yeah and i I think that like
1: turner case and like exactly and like like social greek life in general i have a pretty big bone to pick with and uh we can talk about that later, but could, yeah, I think. Sorry, that's... could you just like define Greek life just quickly? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it's a big thing. So um, for those who don't know, it's like Greek life is um, a broader term does, uh, that's designed to sort of encompass the fraternity and the sorority system in America. I know a lot of Canadian schools also have it now. Um, so like, for example, Alpha Phi is a sorority, a social sorority, um, Delta Chi, um, you know, like Pike or like Pi Kappa Alpha is an American fraternity. Um, these are all like based on the idea of like brotherhood and that's like their core value every single time. Um, Mm -hmm. but like social frats are different in the sense that like they're like, they are very sort of in their own bubble. Like they sort of only mingle with other social frat people. So if you're in a frat, like a social frat at an American school, like you'll be very close with your brothers. You'll be like, um mingling among brothers and other like sisters and sororities and stuff and so there's like a lot of mixers between them um it's a very sort of like it's like it's its own little microcosm Mm -hmm. i would say Mm -hmm. so that's how i would describe it um and so that's why like business frats are a little different in the sense that they're not really affiliated with any of that they're kind of like their own organization so yeah
2: Mm, okay i just lingering on this for a second longer just because um here in canada it's just not as big like that culture like we do still have it here but like over there it seems to be like a cornerstone of going to post-secondary for sure um, do you find so like if somebody were here you know they were going to be going to um, a US school would you recommend that they join a fraternity like what usually does that encompass you know like the pros and cons of that
1: yeah mm-hmm. I think I think you really have to ask yourself again it's like it's like what do I want to get out of my college experience and for a lot of people, they want to go to college just to, you know, to study hard, get their degree and get out. And if that's your motive, then yeah, by all means, like don't do any of the social stuff. But for some people, they're like, oh, I want to like, you know, I want to go a party. I want to like, you know, meet, meet girls. I want to meet guys, like things like that. And so it's like, if that's your, that's another one of your like missions in college, then a fraternity or a sorority might be something looking into because they do have a really great, um, network of people to connect you to. And that's, you know, that's what I'll say. I think that's one of the pro points of Greek life is that they have people to put you in contact with who will become your friends for a while. So that's for good. a while.
0: <laughs> what about like on the other side of things? Like what's, I know, I know you, you said you get into this later, but I think, you know, since we're on the topic, we might as well like unpack this a little bit. Like what are some of the downsides of like, you know, maybe if, if you're not comfortable saying, like you don't have to say about your own experience, but like just in general with Greek yeah. life that you've observed and like how that differs between like business frats, social frats, and like how your perception of that kind of changed as you were in it
1: yeah sure i think so for me i think greek life in american schools in general is based on this culture of like i don't know i, th- I think like my biggest bone to pick with greek life was the fact that it was so unregulated i think mm-hmm. one of my biggest problems was that they were very sort of like you know they're like oh yeah let's drink let's do this let's throw parties and stuff but they weren't you know they have all these like these insidious problems within them in terms of like The way they treat women the way they sort of treat minors the way they like abuse things and like stuff like that And so I wasn't really a big fan of that like I mean like don't get me wrong like I'm all for like, you know partying and like, you know doing things responsibly, but it's like I think with them it was like it was kind of an irresponsible abuse of their own power Mm. And I didn't like that. That's one of the things that I don't like about sort of social Greek life And that's one of the way like the reasons why I thought business frats were a little more appealing because they were um they were a lot more sort of like vocal about things that matter, like issues that, you know, we don't really talk about as much as we should nowadays. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like exactly. Regarding the things that you were talking about, like the Brock Turner case, things like that. Right. So, so yeah, that's how that's one of the reasons why I distinguished them because um, I don't want to be affiliated with an organization that does mm-hmm. things like that. But, yeah. I think
2: it's a good, like, important distinction to be made because I think popular culture tends to paint, like, fraternities as just a bunch of, like, dumb jocks or, you know, like, just airheaded girl yeah. stuff
1: like that you know yeah yeah exactly and um you know like a lot of these frats will say like you know like we have like a lot of u.s presidents who came into our fraternities uh-huh. you know and it's like and it's like okay cool but like look at those u.s presidents now like they were involved in quite a quite a lot of stuff man. Like, built, <laughs> like you know so oh, man. i don't know man like, this don't get me started. i
0: don't know if you guys have been watching like the epstein thing on netflix but that's like yeah. a whole another kind of words we won't get into that oh, discussion but like man yeah, just like a I, of like
1: different yeah sorry yeah no yeah exactly i just i finished that today actually Literally. um crazy crazy yeah it really opens your eyes up um would recommend watching that
0: mm. for sure um so yeah yeah good good discussion point on like you know frats and stuff but kind of like centering the conversation a little bit more just like so any high school students listening like you know can get the most out of it like do you have any tips for high school students that are like are currently applying to the us or like looking to apply for next year like um, in terms of the decision-making process? Because, like, I know you mentioned that, yeah, like, figuring out your values is a big thing. And then for you, it was, like, kind of, like, specifically, you know, you were interested in CS and that sort of thing. But, like, what you, what about, like, tips on, like, the application process and, like, things like that? Yeah. Just sort of more yeah, generally, because I, I know there's a lot of resources online, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think I think American schools in general are, like, very. have a very different sort of application process. Um, from what I remember in my experience in general was that a lot of American schools are centered around this thing called the common app. Mm-hmm. And that's like what a lot of schools will use. Um, so that's like pretty much all schools will use the common app. Uh, Berkeley actually didn't. Berkeley has their own like UC sort of system. They have their own like UC portal through which you have to like write your essays and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and common app is where you like like put your other supplementary essays and like things like that for like schools like Harvard and all the Ivy Leagues and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than the portals and like these things, I think – any tips for high school students would be to, like, standard stuff, you know? I think, like, keep your grades up. I think American schools do put a lot of, like, importance on grades, Um, especially, like, if you're interested in the field that you're, like, applying for, show excellence in that domain. Like, Mm. um, if you're going into computer science, if you're studying mathematics, right? Like, be good at those things in in high school, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, And also, like, I know a lot of people talk about, like, test scores. Um, I actually, like i've been like i feel like a lot of schools are realizing this too like tests like the sat and the act weren't aren't really designed like that well to sort of measure your intelligence i think you can watch a lot of videos on this like vox has a few videos on this too didn't UC Um, recently
0: abolish like the use of standardized testing in their system
1: yeah they did they actually announced that this year and um yeah, so they 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 got rid of the the they're not, like they're not trying to like look at SAT scores, especially with the, with the COVID nineteen crisis. They're trying to sort of like place less and less like stress on their students who are applying um, to become false. Yeah, fall I, actually, exactly. I just got
0: my GREs canceled uh, this morning. Seriously, I, I've been on the phone oh, all day. Yeah, big big. I don't even know if I want to talk about this on the podcast. It just <laughs> depressed me. But basically, like I've been planning to write my GREs for like two months on like on this thursday and then i was gonna fly out right after i go to california and i had it booked at like an in test center because they said that um there was an at-home option but they said that things weren't that bad yet so they weren't like gonna cancel it they canceled it like yesterday and then i saw it this morning and i was like what the heck like what do i do so i tried to reschedule and they didn't refund me and so now i'm like down 200 us dollars so if anyone from uh ETS, which is the organization that does the GREs listening, I want my money back, bro. What? <laughs> I was on hold with it for like three hours. But yeah, sorry. Quick aside, but I know it's yeah, like super um, stressful right now for, for exactly. people Exactly. And tests.
1: so, yeah, I yeah, know. that's That sucks with the GRE, man. I mean, yeah. like people, yeah, that's one of the reasons they wanted to get rid of the SAT. But yeah, mm. like in terms of standardized testing, I mean, like I, I know the SATs recently like changed their format up a little bit. Like they went from the 2400 scale, which is like when I took it. To the 1600 skill now which is like meant to test a lot more about like your like actual understanding rather than how well you can memorize things mm-hmm. which i think is a really great like change to make i think it was one of my bones to pick with the sat was like when am i ever going to use the word acrimonious like in a sentence <laughs> oh, you know yeah. <laughs> like things like that so i mean you never know you know but <laughs> but yeah and just um, used it so. <laughs> i did i did yeah but um but yeah, so if there's if some schools are still taking those tests, do well on those tests. I wanted to talk a bit more about extracurriculars because I feel like that's a big thing for a lot yeah. of high school students that they like focus on. Um, and my view of extracurriculars is that if you are involved in organizations outside of school, that's awesome. But make them relevant. Like make them make them reflect who you like who you are for one, and two things that you mm-hmm. are actually passionate about. And I see this. With a lot of high school kids that I talk to, you know, it's like these kids are trying to involve themselves with like five or six different organizations in school. And it's, but if you really like ask them about it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, like I, I do this like the, this like one little volunteering thing on the side and I'm like, I like plant trees on weekends and like I like, I'm also like DECA president and like I'm like doing these things for like this, this, this. And it's like, oh, yeah, but like it seems like it, that's kind of all over the place. Like, what do you really like, you know? So if you genuinely have a passion, let's say for medicine, right? Um, Let's say one of your extracurriculars is like you volunteer at a lab, right? Mm -hmm. That's really, that's awesome. That's great. Like that shows a real passion for some of the things that you're actually applying for. If you can show results like a paper that you worked on or like research that you got published or things that you worked on that are related to that, then that's awesome as well. Mm -hmm. But um, don't try to sort of fill your resume up because you think that universities will like that a lot of times it can actually work against you. And I think that's something important to to understand. These schools are looking for people who are genuinely passionate about what they want to study and to show like excellence in that domain. Mm -hmm. Um, like I, I make this distinction to a lot of kids. I think like, um, I think a lot of people like, like a lot of good schools, like Stanford, especially like wants this. It's like they want kids who are pointy, not rounded. Mm -hmm. And, um, I want to make the distinction here as well, where it's like pointy doesn't mean that you're like sort of bad in everything else. It just means that you have one thing that you're good at, but you're like really, really freaking good at that. Mm -hmm. And that's oftentimes a really good, um, like a really good distinguishing factor between you and everyone else. Mm -hmm. If everyone else is just well-rounded, but you're like the best in the country for something, then they'll take the person who's the best in the country for that one thing.
2: Mm. Interesting. Because like... I, yeah, I mean, like I feel like that's definitely like the world we live in now. Um, it's harder to be a generalist today. Like people definitely favor specialists uh, more than anything. So um, mm-hmm. even like polymats, they're like an extinct breed or they're they're dying breed. But mm-hmm. exactly. do you think you can uh, I, I don't know if it's even possible. if you can make the case where because I'm an advocate for, you know, you might have like a couple things you're passionate about, And if that is like using your passions as a North star and letting that guide you. And if you do want to do all those extracurriculars where you're tapping into a couple seemingly disparate things, what if you're able to make the case where you can leverage those um, like kind of satellite things into being able to enhance like the one like program or area they're going into. So leveraging like business and like tech knowledge to improve the medicine Mm -hmm. experience.
1: I mean, if that's, You bring up a good point actually I think that that's one another thing I wanted to sort of like mention is that Mm -hmm. People when applying should have a story right and so try to craft a story That's true to yourself if your story is that you know You are passionate about like these three fields and you want to explore like the intersection between them in college And Mm -hmm. you want to like sort of like do something cool with like business and and medicine, you know And like you want to like explore where that can go. That's an amazing story, Mm -hmm. right? So use that to your advantage. Center your application as a story. Mm. And that's another, uh, it's a great point that actually, like, Damien, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to sort of, like, mention that, like, don't think of your application as, like, you filling out, dis- like, essays that are, dis- like, distinct from one another. Make everything flow. Like, as in, like, mm-hmm. tell a story through your essays. Make it all full circle. And, like, when someone reads your application, let them be like, wow, like, I can see why this kid is, like, like why we should like take this kid in because it's like you can very clearly see that they're like telling their story in a very eloquent manner right Mm -hmm. right it's like they're doing all these things and it makes sense like reading it makes sense i can kind of get understand the type of person that you are from your writing Mm -hmm. so when you craft an application make sure that like your extracurriculars and all this other stuff that you pile on top of your application doesn't distract but if anything makes your application more whole
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm
1: -hmm. that's a really great point yeah. that's the one thing so i've heard like
2: say. everywhere is get good at storytelling that's gonna be like the biggest skill that can take you through life
0: 100 so percent. you're basically
2: like pitching yourself
0: to like through art like through writing you know what i mean i like i don't know i was gonna say super great tips because i'm gonna of into grad school so <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna take they're gonna take some of that and i think especially in university it becomes even harder because there's Like, more of the sense of, like, you know, finding yourself out and, like, figuring yourself out. And, like, because of that, you do a lot of exploration in university. Not that you don't do that in high school. You know, you obviously do. But uh, it's, like, easy for a high school student who's never done engineering to be, like, I'm going to be an engineer and work at this intersection or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then then university, you know, you try stuff out. And I think that, like, whole discussion of, like, yeah, just, like, is it better to be a generalist versus a specialist is, like, just such an interesting and, like, changing discussion, too. Because... It really depends on the field you're in. Number one, but number two, like you know, CEOs are generalists by nature. They're never the best person in the room at anything, you know. Exactly. Um, but yeah. that's still like kind of like the pinnacle of achievement in, in some in in some fields, like in business, right? And so, Agreed. Yeah, it's just like a very interesting discussion on like how do how do you you know allocate your skills. You, every time I think about this I think about 2K. I don't know if you guys play 2K. Yeah, but oh. when you're like making a new my player and then you have to choose like attributes to give him yeah, yeah, and you're, like yeah, should, it, should yeah. I make him taller, you know, should I make him shorter? And there's actually a pretty yeah. interesting like algorithms that can like optimize it so like depending on if you're a shooting guard, like for example, if you're a shooting guard in 2K, you should be 6-6 cuz that's what apparently optimizes you for like every other skill. My sister was telling really? me this morning. Yeah, yeah. So if you're six six and you're a shooting guard, you have the most chance of being the best shooting guard in the league. And then like little things like that. But like, yeah, just like kind of like applying that to your own life. But you can't really do that prospectively. You can only really, really do that retroactively. You know what I mean? Like you can mm-hmm. look at your experiences and see the story they tell. But sometimes it's really hard to like go forward and be like, I want to craft this story for myself throughout these four years.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great analogy. It's... I love that. Yeah. yeah, no, I I like that <laughs> analogy a lot too. Um, no, you're right. I think it's tough to to understand all that beforehand. It's uh, it's really easy to sort of be like, yeah, like I understand that I should have like crafted it this way in, in hindsight, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, you make a great point. Um, but at the end of the day, again, like when you're applying to these things, like keep these things in mind. You know, like sort of understand that I've actually heard this that admissions officers, I think, take around like three minutes. Like glancing through your thing no like way. per i think like per admissions officer i think it's like somewhere it's definitely less than 10 minutes they don't spend more than 10 minutes on Even an application for
0: nothing sure. brother you're right <laughs> yeah. like a, how long is the
1: common app essay it's like a thousand words or like... no it's it's up to 650 so it's oh, okay. it's definitely like they're they're not they're not gonna read your thing word for word they're not gonna like be like mm. oh you know this guy had a few grammar mistakes on this like paper but his like math average is 99.7 so like maybe we should take him in. no they're gonna be like okay well Great, great scores, um, above average SAT score, cool, essays make sense, cool, he's applying for this, okay, does his story make sense? Do we see this kid mm. contributing to our school, right? And like, I think a great way to th- sort of like look at it is like, put yourself in the head of the admissions officer,
0: mm.
1: you're not bidding a person, you're, tr- sorry, not bidding, that's a frat term, you're not like, <laughs> you're not accepting, you're not accepting just a student, you're trying to create a class. And I think that's a good way to look at it because when you think about it that way, you can see why people want specialists. Because in a class, you want to have one person who's really great at math. You want to have one person who's like discovering the next cure to cancer. You want to have one Mm -hmm. person who's going to like, you know, um, become the next like best like trader or like, you know, like. um, So it's like things like that. Like they're they're trying to find people with different interests who are like really, really great at what they're doing. And like their stories make sense. Yeah. And so – when you're applying, keep that in mind because yeah. people are not trying to sort of craft or they're not just they're not just accepting you for you. They're accepting you because they want to see your role in a larger scope, you yeah. know, a, a sort of larger. Yeah, exactly.
0: I love that analogy and I'm going to connect it back to my analogy just because I think it works perfectly. So, like, I think there's two problems to solve here. There's like the local optimization and then the global optimization. Right. So, what I mean by mm-hmm. that is like, you know, you have to optimize for yourself and your own personal development, uh, but yeah. then the class is trying to optimize for the class's health and the class's development, and because of that you know you need specialists, like you said, like specialists bring like a vibrant culture to the class. You know they provide like different diverse experiences. Like Damian mentioned at the beginning, like diversity is so important. Um, and it, it's sort of like the the exact same as as the basketball analogy. Like you want to make your player the best player, but then you know in a basketball team you need a really good shooting guard, you need a really good point guard, and they have to be good at different things. You know they exactly. can't all be good at everything, and then just like be mediocre at rebounding. Like if your center is mediocre at rebounding, then, you know, you're going to have a horrible time at the basketball game. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely like important to kind of like consider that when you're like, when you're applying and like when you're also thinking about like how you want to like construct yourself and your own personal development and how that, how that contributes to, you know, like your decisions of college and things like that. So.
1: Exactly. I think that's a, I think a basketball game analogy is actually really good. So like try to be a really good player right but don't be the same player as everyone else is trying to be right like try to mm. distinguish yourself in some way have an edge
2: I know sure. uh, I know Fwad wants to ask you about um, like data science versus PM versus software engineering and all that um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to get like your personal thoughts though on being a generalist versus being a specialist because I think it's a really interesting topic and something that For warrants sure. more discussion because again typically like journalists are being more punished recently just considering this um, how specialized everyone's becoming they can tend yeah. to fall to the wayside, but what like what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think in today's age, like being a being a specialist definitely has a lot more perks than being a generalist, mm. just because of the fact that people nowadays are like technology is advancing, right? We have different needs, like people need people who can like work with the advancing things, right? Like if you're really good at let's say like the Microsoft Office suite, right? Um, great but at this point everyone is so Mm. like what else right it's like it's like if you can't evolve with the times and if you can't like sort of like specialize in something that people need then i have a feeling This is kind of like this is a little upsetting but it's like the world will leave you behind Mm. because like people are like people are consistently changing our needs are evolving and like we need people to do certain different things right so if you're specializing in an area that people aren't really like no don't really know that much about then mm-hmm. you, there's a lot of demand for you, right? And I think that, like, I think that's why I have a lot of respect for people who do research, because research is one of the like the very clear and like very clear-cut ways to show that look, I'm trying to like go really deep in an area that I'm really passionate about, and it's oftentimes mm-hmm. like from research that like people end up creating the next big thing, right? Like things like the internet, things like Bitcoin, like things like that, like are all like sort of like understood and like. Built upon by someone who wanted to specialize in one certain field mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: that's not to say though at the same time that like don't be good at things like like things other than just like what you're good at I think having a like a solid general understanding of like like m- most things is really helpful, especially when it comes to sort of like meeting new people meeting people from different backgrounds because for example, if you're like really good at coding and you're like trying to speak to someone who you know is like Really big into like public speaking or like really big into like politics, mm-hmm. you don't want to have that much of a disconnect, right? Like, it's like if you're just becoming specialists, then people can't communicate anymore. Mm-hmm. Have enough of a basic understanding of things so that you can have an intelligent conversation with someone, you know? It's mm-hmm. like that's my, at least that's my take on it.
2: That's, I, yeah, I actually sure. love that. I haven't heard that before, but like the focus on the communication, being able to communicate like where you're coming from, um, I think that's the biggest thing um, in being able to build like a better, more cohesive society. Uh, and I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this actually, but the way I've started thinking about it more recently is that there's an intermediate group that we're starting to see. It's still very, um, arcane. Not many people are in that, but Mm -hmm. being a person who finds maybe two areas, two fields that they are particularly passionate about and finding a synergistic relationship between those two things and specializing Mm -hmm. in those two things. So, being able yeah. to leverage like the strengths from both as opposed to just picking like one specific domain, um... I
0: think this is like really clearly summed up by like, I don't know if you've ever heard the quote, like you know you can be like, for example, a really great software engineer, but there's so many software engineers. So being the best so software many. engineer is like a pool of so many candidates. But like you know if you're the best software engineer in Biomed, it's it's already like way smaller and then if you're the best software engineer in biomed working on organic chemistry molecule like simulations then the pool gets even smaller right so like every circle you add to that venn diagram you know reduces the union of the of the like infinitely occurring sets that
1: you're like yeah, overlaying on it without exactly. getting too technical but yeah that's, that's a, a very that's a ma- i like that mathematical description no that's a, that's a good way to put it i think um no like that's that's very true um like both of you guys are right i think especially when it comes to like being a specialist, like having like some interest, like in a job, like being a software engineer, it's, it's really hard to be a, like the best software engineer in the world because there's, like you said, there's like so many, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can be the best software engineer who's also a really great communicator or a really good – if you can be like an above average software engineer but be like a brilliant um, speaker and have like a really great vision and oversight on products, mm. then there you have a lot more sort of like things to offer, right? Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: It's all about like – um, a holistic total of what you can give, rather than just um, being really good at one thing. So it's like kind of like both sides of the same coin. Like have something that you want to be like really good in, but at the same time, like if you think that it's really difficult to become like the absolute best in that, find a way to distinguish yourself by adding some layers to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: It's like that. I I really like the pointy analogy too. Like with the research, like I like everyone in grad school, I think always gets this like where they're like, you know, if all of human knowledge is a circle. And then, you know, your PhD thesis, you just zoom in super, super hard and, like, one part of that circle is, like, circumference and you're basically just taking that point out a little bit, right? And the exactly. human knowledge is just a bunch of people doing that constantly, right? And so the circle gets bigger. Yeah. But your actual contribution to the circle is pretty minuscule, you know, when you think about it in the overall grand scheme of things. So, like, a kind of mm-hmm. a cool way I want to think about it is, like, you know, all humanity's of humanity is a basketball team, and like you know, everybody <laughs> has like a different role, and then you know you have to be good at operating with everyone else on the team. So you need basic skills, right? Like, for example, yeah. like, communication was a great one, right? Like, if you can't talk to people, like for example, dribbling, like if you can't dribble at all, then like you know you can't play the game. But like, you know you need communication to be able to talk to people on your team. Um, you know mm-hmm. you need to have some kind of drive, organizational ability, like things like that. But then you know beyond that, you do need to have some sort of specialization, or you're not really contributing to the team, and the coach isn't going to put you on. So. yeah
1: huh. you can tell uh you can t- you can tell someone's been missing the nba huh
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> i was playing very TK today i don't know that, that probably like
0: contributed to my to my sentiments today but yeah cool. really great discussion for sure um yeah yeah i don't know if you want to kind of pivot it more back to you parth although it was super super great aside uh but one of the other things yeah i kind of want to ask was um about your experiences at at yc uh and damien i know you have like a a bunch of questions on this too but uh for those of you who aren't familiar like yc is is y combinator it's probably like the world's most famous startup accelerator Mm -hmm. um and you know just some some examples of companies like airbnb reddit um dropbox too i want to say dropbox Uh, yes yeah um and then damien for example goat um for any sneakerheads listening um But yeah, so just wanted to like, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the company you formed and like how you went through the process of like joining that company and then ultimately getting interviewed by uh, Y Combinator.
1: Yeah, definitely. So let me start by sort of talking a little bit more about what we built. Um, So our company was called Bids. And um, so interestingly enough, like it's an application that was attempting to regulate social Greek life uh, which sort of like ties back together as to what I was talking about earlier. But, um, the idea behind, like when I was in freshman year, like uh, first year, it was like, I think we all like my friends and I, we sort of like realized there was an issue in terms of how these parties were taking place. Right. Mm -hmm. Like everyone sort of like around the school and stuff would, would hear about these parties and like they would go, but the actual way to let someone in was, was kind of sketch. It was like you would be offered and, um, You'd be offered in by these things like these paper wristbands that they called bids. Mm. And so if you had one of these, they would just check for like the same color and you'd be let in. Problem with this was people saw that it's so easy to get in. So there was a lot of workarounds to this. People started photocopying these bids. People started like sending pictures of these like what these wristbands looked like to all their friends. And all of a sudden, a party that was supposed to have 100 kids – has 300 now and that's over the fire limit like that it's over like the fire you know they have COVID, safety limits yeah, yeah. there um there's also a lot more minors than that there should be you know um and as a result you have a lot more minor related transports you have a lot of sexual assaults that take place you have a lot of problems that can arise from people a lot especially young kids coming to parties abusing alcohol and then not knowing what happens next and that was a big problem that we saw and i think mm-hmm. like and I, I'm not going to, like, you know, I'm not going to be over here and, like, claim, like, I'm the best person in the world. I actually also, took like, exploited the system. I also <laughs> faked, a few, like, a couple of bits. And I think mm. that's, that's really important because it's, like, to really, like, change the system, you have to have kind of, like, person seen knowledge. its flaws personally, yeah. right? So, like, I've, like, I've, I've been in that situation where I've, like, faked it. So, I guess we saw, like, this is a big regulatory issue, right? And it's a big problem with safety. Um, and right now, like... You know, we were like, "Is Ber- if Berkeley is this big of a school and this is this is how they're doing it, this is the best solution, how are other schools doing it? Schools like Stanford didn't even have a bid system. They just had a like a word of mouth system. Mm. You go to the door and you say, oh, who do you know? Name a few brothers. And that is like, I saw, we all thought that was a big problem, like name a few brothers, really? Is that how you're going to let someone in? Yeah. So, um, we wanted to build an application that could regulate this and it was like a platform through which people could send and receive digital invites. Um, for private events on campus, mm-hmm. um, and like the nice thing about bids, and I think that the thing that sort of distinguished it from like people making like event rights or like Facebook groups was that we had like we had features in it that gave a lot of transparency to the hosts, and that was a big factor that we wanted to sort of focus on was mm-hmm. complete transparency on the host end. If you're a host and you invite people, you want to know first of all who is this person being invited by? So like you can have a list of everyone who's coming and you can see who invited those people. So you have the sort of degree of connection chart Mm -hmm. to see how this person got here Two, I want to know what time they came, what time they left. Right. And this, what time they came, what time they left thing was also really important to us because we thought that this provides some sort of a ledger to see, um, to hold people accountable, right? If someone, if, uh, if someone were to come and, and, and make some sort of like, you know, allegation that this thing happened to me. Now we have a, now we have sort of like a a less fakeable sort of like record saying that, oh, this person left with you at the same time. Therefore, we have more evidence as to why your claim might be true. So, you know, it was mm-hmm. sort of like it, it made sense to us. It was like, why hasn't this system already existed? So we built it. And um, we built it and the frats actually weren't initially – that excited to jump on naturally because they have their own traditional way of doing things. So we went to the sororities first. And that was sort of the way we got the frats on board because the girls loved it. And the girls thought it was a great way for mm-hmm. themselves to be safer, right? Because if you think about That's it, awesome. it's literally a second or two at the door, but it gives you a lot more safety. You have a lot more, like, security of your event. You can, like, breathe easier as a host. hmm so once we had the girls on board, the guys jumped on it and we had around six or seven frats who actually ended up implementing bids with their day party system. And it was just really nice to sort of see it um, work out. So after we built the application, we applied to Y C sort of like built the thing and we did some testing. We, we applied to YC and um, to our surprise, we actually ended up getting in, um, a final interview with them. And so... They actually asked us a few questions before this interview. They were like, they were sort of curious about things like monetization, because um, Ice see really cares about that, and that mm-hmm. was an aspect that oh, we yeah. hadn't really fleshed out um, to the best degree. Because at the end of the day, bids was a regulatory platform. We weren't trying to get like make that much money off of it,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: if we wanted to sort of like, be a successful startup, then we had to find a way to do it, and. Um, you know, like you ask any person who makes an ad, like makes an app nowadays, and they're like, Yeah, how'd you make money off it? Oh, I I used ads. And it's like a lot of times advertisements can sort of deter from the goal of your actual application. Right. We wanted sure. bits to be cool, right? And so like we didn't we didn't decide to put ads in before the YC interview. Mm-hmm. Um and so our like our initial monetization model was to have like some sort of like subscription model right. through which Frats could like have host like free like events with up to 50 people. But if they wanted to host more than 50 people at an event, then they have to pay for some sort of monthly subscription model to
2: mm-hmm. be able to
1: host that many people and ha- get free analytics on the people who came so you can see like which things work best for you, what hours were like the most popping. It's
0: like a tier like subscription that. So we,
1: model. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's very common nowadays, mm-hmm. right? Like a freemium model. So we went with that. Um, but yeah, that was like the experience with YC. It was It was really cool because I think when people think about like talking to investors you generally think about like a like a you know conversational meeting where they're like talking to you about like your business itself Mm -hmm. YC is a little different YC was a 10-minute interview they are they're very 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 adamant on concision they want you to speak as least as you can but talk as fast as you can like they're going to ask you question after question after question they'll cut you off they want answers 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 so that was like my team and I actually prepared for months before our interview because we knew they would grill the hell out of us Mm -hmm. so we had to make sure we had all our bases covered so that was it was was a really cool sort of experience going through that Mm -hmm. but yeah I heard some
2: nightmare stories about other people going through those interviews and uh, luckily some of them had uh, did you have an advisor at all or no?
1: no we actually didn't have an advisor we were just going in it like just as like four sophomores yeah that's awesome man (laughs) It sounds
0: like such a cool experience, like, the skills you, you learn from that. Like, we mentioned, like, storytelling is one of the most important skills. And I think, you know, it just speaks volumes that, like, you did such a great job of explaining that. Because I can tell you've had to explain it so many times, probably through your interview process and things like that. And you probably yeah, practiced so many times, too.
1: Told the told the story so many times. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. But we actually had a team of four. So, we had, like, a – we all have to know our own story, but we had to know our parts really well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. exactly yeah
0: yeah but yeah yeah, that's awesome like it's definitely i feel like an experience that everyone should have in university like being able to like build something out or like you know at least engineering students for sure like building something out pitching it but like being aware that it's not just building the thing it's like things like monetization it's things like convincing people to drop on board it's things like paying attention to things that like users might care about like transparency was a big one which i'm sure wasn't like the first thought that jumped into your head when you're like oh i like i want to know like I want to have systems so like people can get into this party, right? But like, exactly you know, things like yeah, like the the time ledger and like things like that probably jumped out to you like as you were building it and like considering definitely, definitely.
1: Zone. I think that's a really good point. I think that people, especially like young founders, um, when they think of a great idea, a lot of the times some of the core like features that are actually like driving your product forward come later, right? Mm-hmm. The idea jumps at first, right, and then you build the product with your team, and you want to have sort of some sort of like. Working prototype, like a minimum viable product, is what they call it, right? Right, right. Uh, and then, Yeah. So you want to like have something that like describes your core values and like your core like selling proposition, but does so in a way that's like not too cloudy. Like it's still like crisp. Mm-hmm. Keeps your like entire idea. Your idea is still there, but the features really push your product forward. For sure. So like features like the ledger and like the um, the host transparency, the uh, the invite graph, mm-hmm. um, were all things that we thought of later that made. Um, bids you know sell much better because people cared about these things they wanted to have Mm -hmm. a way to see you know who is this kid like like does he know a brother well now i can just check oh he knows like brandon oh he knows like parth right so yeah
0: that's awesome man yeah like just kind of going back to that like discussion um I i had a pretty cool phone call the other day with like uh like a founder of a company in toronto he's part of some like stealth biotech company so can't officially like record the name on this podcast but um what he was talking about was how um like a lot of people and especially young founders and first-time founders focus on the idea and like think that they have to like come up with the most original idea ever like an idea that no one's ever thought of and like completely new and like revolutionary and like people tend to go for like things like moonshots too right like i'm gonna make fusion reactions possible like I'm, i'm gonna you know put man on the moon like i'm gonna or I mean, we've already done that, but like things like that, you know what (laughs) I mean? Like big problems that nobody's ever solved and like no one's had ideas of. And like, that's just like a a very immature way of looking at like founding a company Mm -hmm. and things like that because uh, what he was saying was that, you know, the idea is important, obviously, but way more important than the idea is execution and the team and the talent and, and the synergy and like consideration yep. to users because like yeah so many companies like you know their primary product today isn't even the primary product they came out with in the beginning of you know their company's history like they found yeah. new problems and they pivoted to new areas like you know google is extremely involved in ads microsoft is extremely involved in like cloud infrastructure that has nothing to do with the personal computer you even know like I mean? amazon or, yeah yeah amazon web services yeah. is a great one like what does it have to do with selling books you know mm-hmm. what i mean so yeah, yeah like super yeah. super great point
1: yeah, I think I think you bring up an excellent point there. I think a lot of the times, like it's never really about how unique your idea is. It's a lot more about if someone has an idea, can you make it better? Can you can you take their what they already did, but offer some kind of new spin to it, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm not a big fan of like Mark Zuckerberg, but I think there was just, like one quote from The Social Network that I thought was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, you had an idea, I had a better one, right? Mm. It's like, um, not in any way promoting the fact that you should steal ideas from other people, but <laughs> it's more like, that's sort of like a lot of the, that's a, it's a pretty big part of the culture, especially in Silicon Valley. It's like, mm-hmm. people build on startups. People will take ideas that already exist, but make them better, add some new feature to it, right. right? Um, Like for example, like Uber Eats, right? Uber Eats was like a great idea, but it was built on top of the actual functionality that Uber already provided, Right. But it's its own application, right? Like Uber Eats and Uber are like distinct. At, yeah. But at the same time, it's like Uber was thinking, like, oh, how can we innovate now? Now that we've already built a service that is like, you know, get people from point A to point B. Well, now we can get food from point A to point B. Mm-hmm,
2: so it's mm-hmm. like things like
1: that, right? It's like adding on to your own thing. It's
2: so, a huge mm-hmm. thing, like, yeah. especially within tech. Like it's such a copycat industry. Um, like we oh, do yeah. Instagram so stories, Snapchat stories. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I actually saw this, like, I think I saw it on LinkedIn somewhere um but it was like a post it was like a i don't know, like an eight by four chart or something like that it was titled has your startup idea been done yet and they had like a couple different <laughs> things so it'd be like an uber for businessmen an uber for um this or like an airbnb for this or like things like that yeah. right basically taking what already exists and applying it to new groups to see if that mm-hmm. um, exactly thing and like that just speaks to how you really don't need to have a groundbreaking idea
0: so there's actually a phenomena for this it's called the uber for airbnb phenomena yeah. um so it's like no, no no it's legitimately called that but it's basically yeah the phenomena of like building something for something else and like combining these new ideas and things and um uh, this is a little bit off topic but um i think that there was like an op-ed or like a, a thought piece that mark Andreessen like put up uh he's like a prominent like thought leader in like silicon valley and stuff uh, but one of yep. my friends at Stanford actually um, wrote, like, a really interesting op-ed, like, kind of, like, against it. Um, oh, my bad, my bad. <laughs> but uh, it was just a really, just, just a really interesting discussion about, like, how tech culture is, like, you know, sort of building these things that don't really have a tangible basis in reality and, like, you know, sometimes don't even solve problems that need to be solved. And, like, we kind of just spin up things and, like, make these Ubers for Airbnbs and, like, you know things like that that don't really translate to physical problems and like mm-hmm. actual problems that need to be solved and like we have this sort of like ecosystem of venture capital that's like chasing money chasing ideas chasing stories but like not exactly. always chasing the real problems that need to be solved and so like this so Mark Andreessen's piece was basically like you know a call to action for covid where he was like you know we need to be building things like we need to improve tech like we need to like you know be focusing on our ability to build and our ability to build is what's going to enable us to solve problems. And I think COVID's like putting like, you know, like a a very big flag on the fact that we need to do this. But, um, you know, the op-ed was kind of arguing that like, yeah, sure, we need to build things. And like, I want to encourage building, but really like a lot of these things that we're building, like aren't really solving the problems that we need. Like some of these problems like need to be solved by policy. Like for example, healthcare, healthcare is a huge problem in the US, but it's not a problem that's limited at all by technology because we have like the technology to give everyone great care if you're rich, you know, your, your average life expectancy. And I always go back to this example, but like in, in Chicago, going from one end of the subway line to the other results in changing your life expectancy from 55 to 86. That's a 31 year difference in life expectancy from one end of the subway to the other. Right. And so healthcare is one of those things in the U S for example, that like we can't solve by building. We can't solve by like these Uber for Airbnbs. Like we need public policy. We need like action actionable, like, you know, like, like legislature and things like that. But yeah, sorry, a little bit off topic, but just, I, th- I, th- I thought I related a little bit. But,
1: I feel yeah. like I feel like talking about policy change has never been more relevant than today, you know? Like, mm. especially with all that's been going on, I think it's very, very important to understand that like the real way to enact change in society is to really get at the roots of where it can be changed. And that's at like the legislative, you know, sort of like sector. It's like, how can we elect people? How can we sort of like change the way these policies are made Mm-hmm. So, that they can sort of like benefit and actually transpire change. Mm-hmm. So that's a great point for sure.
2: So, um, yeah, so I just wanted to pivot it a little bit again, like back to you, Parth, our guest of honor today. Um, so, <laughs> you have actually a pretty unique, I want to say, interest or niche interest that not a lot of people share, or at least they're just not aware of it. But I'm sure more people would be interested, and that is cryptography so yeah how about you just tell us uh just quickly like what is cryptography
1: yeah definitely uh cryptography is the the field of creating strong ways to um encrypt i don't want to use the word in its own definition but it's it's, it's a way it's a way to sort of like create strong ways to safely keep things that are meant to be private private Mm -hmm. Um, and it's based on three principles uh, and those principles are confidentiality integrity and authenticity So confidentiality talks about like, oh, if I'm getting a message from like myself to Fuad, I want to make sure that only me and you are able to encrypt and like break this message so we can actually understand it. That's really important, especially when it comes to all modern communication today. We use like, especially when you like connect to any website, like we use TLS, right, which is uh, transport layer security, which essentially is this like layer of like, you're talking to a server, but you and the server have the ability, only you and the server have the ability to talk to one another and exchange messages and whatnot. So sort of like um, a so handshake, I think, is the analogy. Of of exactly, yeah. exactly. The three-way handshake for mm-hmm. TLS. So that's um, that's one thing. And then you have um, authenticity, which is like, if I, if on the way from me talking to you, Fuad, if mm-hmm. Damien were to change the message, I want to make sure that you can, like, or sorry, authenticity is when I get the message from you, me to you, I want to make sure that you can tell that it was from me. Mm-hmm. And then integrity is if Damien were to change that, I want, it, I want you to, be able to know that it was changed, it was yeah. tempered with. So, making sure that those three principles are met are pretty much the entire um, notion of cryptography. And it's like, we want to find ways to securely, like, you know, keep things that are meant to be private. Private, um, we want to encourage the use of privacy, like, you know, private things, we want to keep people's privacy as the number one, sort of like most important thing, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different movements nowadays that really like stress that, you know, especially the cryptocurrency movement. Uh, I think people have like sort of hopped on that train. Like it was like 2016 or 2015 when people really, really understood like the use of it and like it was blowing up. Like blockchain was like every other word you heard nowadays, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. So it's like, I thought that was really cool. I actually took a class on it this past semester and that's when my like interest for it really, really sparked. Cause we, it was it was a really cool intro class that we like, that sort of went through a bunch of different types of security. So like it went through like um, OS level security, which is like things like programs and stuff that can be like tampered with and can like mess up your like computers, right? And that's like things like buffer overflows and like worms and viruses and things like that. That's what happened to like a bunch of computers back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have things like network security, which is like uh, you know like. People who are on the network, like sniffing packets and like people who can like hijack your Wi-Fi, people who can like basically like intercept communications between you and some other thing, right? That's what we have now services like Tor that can like protect your privacy and like they can make sure that if you're trying to really have an encrypted channel that no one can intercept, now you have one. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then you have um, web security where it's like if I'm going to create a website and if I want, if I'm going to create like some kind of thing that's going to be hosted on the web, I want to make sure that no like person can break it. And that's when you come talk about things like injection attacks. You think about like SQL injection, you mm-hmm. know, like cross-site scripting, things like that. So I thought that, was, that stuff was like really cool because it was like, I feel like, I'm, I was never a, like a big into hacking, but like this class was the way it was taught to us. And actually, I can tie this back to like why Berkeley was so awesome. I think like one of the reasons why I thought this class was so cool was that they said that we want to teach you guys how to be um, great security experts. We mm-hmm. want to teach you guys how to build secure systems. But to teach you how to build them, we need to teach you guys how to break them first. Mm. And I thought that was awesome. So they kind of like, it was like an intro course to hacking pretty much that the entire course was. And so we had like all of our projects were centered around like us getting into some system. Our first project was like six staged and in each each one of those things we had to like, uh, every single stage was harder and harder, but like we had to get root access into everyone's like, into every single VM, like virtual machine that we went into. And it felt like I was a hacker for a second. So it was, like, really cool. And I wanted to, like, get into it. So that's kind of what sparked my interest for it. And, um, you know, like, now I'm, like, trying to see how I can get myself more and more involved in the crypto community, uh, cryptography. But, um, you know, I'm, like, trying to sort of be a student instructor next semester for this class. No way. Um, big moves. Yeah. Big moves. <laughs> okay. I just thought it would be fun, yeah. It's just, like, one of the things that I think are, like, really cool. I mean, so, it's sick. Like,
2: yeah, even just what I brought up, I saw you just, like, light up uh, when i mentioned yeah. it so i just it's it's evident this is something that you're super passionate about uh do you have like a favorite cipher by any chance like in history that's you
1: know? uh it's a good question i i think uh, i'm glad you brought it up i think um i think like now that i've like learned about these i, I think i think aes was revolutionary i think okay. it's one of the coolest It's it's called a block cipher right um and essentially what that means is that it's like it's, it uses um, bitwise operators like bit shifts and like flips and XORs and like all these things in like a 16 by 16 block to turn a message completely into something else. Mm-hmm. And um, AES itself is deterministic, which means that like the same input will get you the same output. Right. Which in the cryptography world is actually bad. You don't want things to be deterministic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So AES oftentimes has, um, you have like uh, these things like AES CBC or like, um, you know things that AES combined with some sort of like chaining that adds this level of like randomness to a cipher. Right. So it's like the same thing won't like um, be ciphered into the same you know like the same mm-hmm. thing more than once. So I thought I think AES was a revolutionary jump because it really like changed all of security forever because almost every single thing that we secure nowadays is secured with AES.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No it was cool because like um, in doing because like, I, I looked into crypto cryptography sorry um a bit more like in prepping for this and i mean like so enigma is probably like, the one that most people generally are fr- yes. familiar with yes yes um from, from like, world war two world war two yeah. yeah yes and you know even so, so there's a lot of actually like really cool interesting conversation to be had around this but are you are you more interested in the breaking of systems or in the building of a unbreakable code
1: I think I'm a lot more interested in building. I think it's uh, I think breaking is always fun yeah. to like sort of like read about, but it's honestly it's really hard like to find flaws in systems that are already existing. Mm. Like to give a bit of like um a bit more context on how AES was formed. It stands for the Advanced Encryption Standard, but it was actually um, there was a precursor to AES called DES the data encryption standard mm-hmm. and so DES was actually considered like secure and then it's like people were relying on DES for a lot of communications until people realized that it was not and this is going to throw in a bit of terminology here it wasn't uh in cpa secure in cpa means indistinguishable against chosen plain text attack and in cpa is like a really big concept in cryptography nowadays where it's like if you um if you can decipher any sort of even the slightest bit of information um, from two different plain text messages, then your cipher is not secure. Like, you don't want to, you want to have a cipher that basically gives absolutely no information to any bystander, even if they see, like, a hundred conversations being said. Mm-hmm, like, you want to mm-hmm. give no information. So DES was actually not, um, not in CPA secure. And so people were breaking DES. People broke the data encryption standard um, in the 90s, I think. and And it was a big deal. People were like, damn, like, now what, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have these, like, these two, like, Belgian researchers, like, Rind- Rindale and this other person I can't think of it but they come up with like the advanced encryption standard and it was like people were like damn this works it's tough, yeah. and yeah. I think and I think that's like a big uh, sort of like thing to um, address and like sort of stress too it's like a lot of times in the computer science and engineering community in general it's like people are experimenting a lot like people don't really know that much like uh, like, like mm-hmm. it's like people know as much as me and you do a lot of times about like things and they're just trying to like try things out it's like hey I built this maybe it works let's just try it right so it's like a lot of what-ifs in the computer science community and Mm -hmm. so if you're like really into something like try building something and maybe it'll work you know so that was cool yeah i
0: love how like the the research element comes into it too because like we had the discussion at the beginning of this about like um you know being a generalist versus being specific and one of the ways that like we are allowed to be generalists is by people who are specific you know what i mean like one of the ways in which we can build on these standards like AES and then, you know, build sites that are, like, sort of, like, exactly. more generalist and, like, mm-hmm. solve problems with it is through these specific people who, like, you know, when they came up with AES, they were not thinking about Facebook using AES to encrypt its messages. They were just thinking, yeah. yo, this is cool. Like, DS exactly. doesn't work, and, like, I found a cool way to, like, fix it. And, like, that translated into so much innovation down online, which I think is just so awesome.
1: I think you bring up an excellent point there, too. I think, like, that's a... that's like. Once you understand the importance of being a specialist, people can generalize upon your thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like that's uh, that's really interesting because it's like like I wanna go back to the point you made about the PhD thesis being a really small point in that big circle, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like each one of those small points creates another big circle, right? Yeah. So like if you think about yeah, right, you see what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so like those fields evolve into something else. And that's what I was like, it it ties into the entire idea of like things evolving every single day and like the need Mm -hmm. for specialization is so high now because it's like we need people to create these generalizable fields we need Mm -hmm. to keep innovating and for people to do that we need people to actually like go really really deep into one thing yeah right and so
0: yeah yeah you know this reminds me of like the fact that um like the volume i almost think of it like almost like a sphere because like when you think about it like moving a point out from a circle is whatever but like when keeping in mind volume, like the, the equation for the volume of a sphere depends on radius cubed, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like every additional specific change you make to the outside of the sphere increases the volume by a factor of three, you know what I mean? So like, yeah. you know, when a researcher is able to do that, it, he creates a space times three where people can innovate and build and be those generalists, right? Like, like it's so powerful. Like, they're they're essentially, yeah, building their own spheres, building their own circles, like building their exactly. own fields from doing that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah,
2: that's a great point. I right. mean, We're standing on the shoulders of giants like every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, for real. So uh, just going back to um, cryptography now and like kind of tying into major present world events. Um, so this is actually something that hasn't been getting, I want to say like any or just very like barely any coverage. Um, and that is mm-hmm. the earn it act that a couple of US politicians are trying to pass in the States. I don't know if you've heard of it
1: the I, I i feel like i have heard of it uh you want to remind me a little bit yeah, absolutely
2: about it? so it was a planned bipartisan measure um in the mm-hmm. U- the u.s senate where it would essentially prevent any uh, or like yeah all messaging services from using end-to-end encryption so okay. they're just trying to remove end-to-end encryption from messaging services from like whatsapp um facebook telegram things like that mm-hmm. um and obviously, you know this is a huge deal, especially within like the cryptography committee uh, community, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, what are your thoughts on that? Because like, the the government would have a backdoor for all your messages. They'd see everything you're saying. All those nudes.
1: Yeah. Whatever. Surveillance state, Big Brother. All those
0: nudes.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. So I wanna I wanna sort of like talk about the end to end feature. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, so end to end. I think end to end encryption was like. Is, is a really, really big facet of confidentiality, right? It, it's, it enables two parties to communicate securely. And I think that, um, especially in today's world, I think privacy has become one of the biggest sort of pillars that we look at when it comes to anything. You know, it's like, um, people want to keep their private lives private, which is why people decide to, you know, have the option to keep their like tweets protected or tweets public. Mm-hmm. You want to give people the option to choose between whether or not they want to have their messages encrypted or not. Mm-hmm. I think, um, so I actually just, just Googled the earn it act and it's, um, it's interesting because these like, it was like what it, I have an article from March 5th, 2020. And it's like, it's just interesting to me because like the events that transpired in a few months, like looking at things today, people want to like expose people. Like people want to know the answers. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like moments like these where like, having the ability to break anti encryption can prove to be useful right but at the same time on a civilian level right you people want to keep their privacy we want to know what donald trump we want to we want to see donald trump's tax returns we want to see if he's filing his taxes right we want to see the communications between him and epstein like we want to have these answers but these things are kept private from the public so if they're it's kind of a two-way street if people on the higher level want to keep their privacy then civilians should keep their privacy as well and mm-hmm. I think that's sort of my take on it. It's like if you want to sort of like remove, like if you want to have the Earn It Act to pass and you want to remove people's privacy and get rid of this end to end encrypted feature, if you want people to listen to what we're talking about, let us listen to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, that's but at least that's my sort of. Do you think freedom.
2: that it, does that like, just that trade off warrant having it in place? You mean like, is that worth <laughs> to- it at, at, like at all?
1: i say no i mm-hmm. think i think my take on all of this is that i'm a big i'm a big fan of privacy i think mm-hmm. strong cryptography should be very very important in people's lives i think people should be people should keep their private lives private mm-hmm. and i'm all for respecting people's privacy as well wait so in my opinion, i have a question for you real quick then
0: yeah if you know i think i think a lot of people say this and it's something i've always struggled to like kind of counter but like you know when people make the argument that you know if I have nothing to hide why does this matter like how do you defeat some how do you defeat that argument like what are your counterpoints against that
1: I think people throw the idea of having nothing to hide very loosely Mm -hmm. and I think that like that should be addressed because honestly man everyone has something to hide like there in my opinion it's like you can say that you keep your entire life public and if there's nothing like really incriminating against you but at the same time we keep things private to ourselves that are just like understood and are the norm we keep our passwords private we keep things like our our emails are always private to ourselves right we keep our texts with our loved ones private Mm -hmm. those are things that like are inherently part of who we are but it's like is that something that you want to hide from people maybe not but it's like at the same time do you value that like connection you have with that person because it's private, right? It's like a lot of times, like these things are built around the idea of these communications being private and Mm. being end-to-end and that's what gives them value, right? If you say things, if you say something to someone but you know that you're being watched, the things that you say will be different. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that's sort of my sort of like rationale for it. It's like, sure, you might not have anything to hide but if if you knew there was some sort of big brother figure always watching you, you wouldn't be the same person you are right now.
2: Mm. I you, yeah, I brought up a whole bunch of good points because I think that's the part that people miss out on. Like when they, the, the whole note, like nothing to hide. I mean, like I'm sure you wouldn't want your like passwords being leaked to anybody, or anything like that, right? Um, yeah. This includes like any sensitive information um, and not just, you know, pictures or like where you've been, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, uh yeah do you, so i do have like two other kind of closing questions do you have anything you want to like throw in there before i ask those i questions? actually
1: yeah no i actually just wanted to mention that like like the rise of anonymous in recent days has been like very mm-hmm. sort of like like it really ties in the idea of people like wanting like this the people wanting this desire to like expose people's private lives right Mm -hmm. you have like a group of like international hacktivists coming together and like showing the affidavits between trump and epstein and like doing things like this for the good of the people and it's like people love that because people want to like it, it all comes down to like what the masses want in this case you have like the vast majority determining that this person as a person is morally corrupt. And so like we have the right to know what's going on in, in his private life because he is supposedly the leader of her nation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like I think a lot of times like you have to weigh it on a case-by-case basis when it comes to privacy. Mm-hmm. People on an individual scale should have the right to privacy. But at the same time, if you're someone who is influential, mm-hmm. right, you must sort of like you need to sort of adjust that accordingly. You have to understand that your life can't be as private you need to sort of share some things that people mm-hmm. need to see mm-hmm.
2: do you uh, okay so cuz like we there's always like um, events that transpired that basically rip down the facade that most public figures keep up that they're good patrons of you know morality or whatever it is um, for example you know like Snowden is a political refugee now because of all the shit mm-hmm. he exposed about the US government mm-hmm. uh, is a great example Yeah. Yeah. Snowden or even like the Panama papers that were leaked a couple of years ago right do you think mm-hmm. like the public should be more outraged by like when when these things are exposed? Because like at this point, it feels like people are so jaded when things like this pop up that they just assume this to be the the reality, the nature of the world that we live in, and they don't really Plus,
0: like conspiracy theory culture too. You know what I mean? Like so many people yeah. like, think that like all these things already exist and there's nothing we can do about them. You know?
2: Yeah. Do you think we should be more outraged
1: about it? Like, are we just too jaded? honestly man I think that like I think the level of like jadedness that people have nowadays like it, it sort of makes sense it's like it's like you see one case happen where someone of power or political power has like has like done something that they they said they weren't doing or like has lied very very clearly in the face of the public mm-hmm. right and like these cases keep coming up and after a certain point it's hard to keep up with them right and so it's like in my opinion like, is there – should there be outrage around these things happening like like for example, the Panama Files or even like Edward Snowden being like one of the, like, the most like notorious whistleblowers, right? Like or are these people just doing their job? Like I think the movie Snowden is a really great example. Like if you guys want to, if you guys have ever watched that, it's mm-hmm. like you can see like this guy felt that he had a, like an obligation to his country. It's like this guy mm-hmm. feels like what he's doing is right. And so it's like if you have – I in my opinion, like when people in positions of power – clearly abuse their authority and do so in a private manner that's not right i think that's when like people should express outrage because it's like you want to have someone especially when it comes to political power you want to have people who can lead but lead in a way that's like that's inspiring it's like you want to have people who like lead by example Mm -hmm. and the case that we've seen like we've things that we've been seeing nowadays it seems like when these cases come up because of their power they just get swept under the rug yeah. Right. Like these people just make these problems go away. And that's sort of the problem with like current politics, in my opinion. It's like, is there, should there be outrage? Yes. But is there that much done about this? No. Right. I, so, I think I think it's
0: such a good point when you're talking about case by case, because the way I've always thought about it is like, so, you know, like you mentioned, certain people have more influence and power than others. Right. That's just facts. Like Donald Trump has a platform. And because of his platform, you know, part of that necessary cost of achieving that platform is a sacrifice in privacy. And so the way I like to think about it is like, you know, a lot of people think like somebody like LeBron James, for example, doesn't have an obligation to like talk about issues or like, you know, like use his platform for good because, you know, he's a basketball player. He didn't sign up to be an activist. He didn't sign up to be a politician. He doesn't have a degree in political science or like journalism or whatever it is, right? But I think... You know, that's the wrong way of looking at it. And number one, I think LeBron James does have a right to talk about all these things because, you know, as a black male in the U.S., he's experienced all these things. But, like, beyond that, in and of itself, I think when you achieve a platform, one of the costs of achieving that platform is privacy. And one of the, like... You know, res- with power comes great responsibility. One of the one of the things mm-hmm. you have to start realizing is that as you have more and more influence on people, you necessarily have more and more responsibility. And you know what you do with that pattern starts to matter more because when you say something in a private conversation and influence a million people's lives is different from me saying to Damien or like talking shit about you to Damien. You know what I mean? Like it's completely <laughs> yeah. a different question. Um. So
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you're no, you're completely right. I think like. I think people in power should realize that, right? And it's like, especially like, I want to like sort of like take a little bit of a side and like, and talk about like celebrities too, right? It's like Mm -hmm. people with not just power, but people with fame, right? Like people who have this sort of like influence over a lot of people are placed under the same lens, right? When you become big, when you become sort of like at that level that you are, Mm -hmm. your life becomes under a microscope, right? Like people are always scrutinizing your reactions. And as a result, you should sort of understand that like, look, You don't have the same benefits of privacy that, like, you know, me or you do, right? Like sitting behind our computers and, like, recording this podcast. Like, we have the benefit of privacy, but people like these who are, like, who have their lives publicized should understand that as a result, they have a much greater responsibility to uphold this, like, standard that people should follow, Mm -hmm. right? If you are an influencer, influence well, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, like, sort of, like, my take on it. It's, like, if you're going to be someone with power, someone who has the ability to change people's opinions... And someone whose privacy has been compromised as a result, like use this in a way that like inspires people to like do things, do better things, right? Like don't mm-hmm. let, like if, if you're going to be someone who like wants to keep their private lives private at a very large level, at a very large like scale of like, fame or something, you mm-hmm. shouldn't have signed up for that in the first place because you know that that was going to be, you knew that that was going to be compromised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you,
2: cause like, oh man, there's, there's a bunch of different ways I can take this too. Um, Okay, because I like how you mentioned the case-by-case basis again because I think context is really important for some of the choices that people, especially in power, have to make, right? Um, Sometimes there are necessary evils. You're choosing between the lesser of two evils. um, And those aren't important choices to make. And if somebody can see that one choice being made without the greater context or the landscape it's painted onto, Mm -hmm. it's easy for outrage to spring up as a consequence of that as well. But as, like, I mean, both of you are... I guess I I don't know if parts of you are citizen technically right now. No, I'm a a
1: Canadian. Anyway, okay. As people
2: like kind of involved in like U.S. politics, do you think that we're not holding our elected officials to a high enough standard?
1: I don't think it's the fault of people um, who are. I don't think it's the fault of the citizens at all. I think that I think right now there's a very very clear problem um, with the level of. I, to be honest, I think the biggest problem is apathy. I think people like citizens, especially don't care enough about getting elected officials at these at this stage, because they don't think it'll make an impact. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is like the people who are leading our country, we have complete jurisdiction to put them up there. Mm -hmm. And when you show a level of like, like apathy, right, that's what ends up resulting and transpiring in all these like problematic events, right? That like, that these things people are saying all these like like messed up things and stuff, mm-hmm. but I think it is in the power of the people to choose you know carefully who they want to elect for their you know their um their municipal their state level and their like mm-hmm. their national level um sort of representatives and like that's sort of like it, it all comes down to us to like you know like if you can vote like go vote mm-hmm. right like that's mm-hmm. like I wish I could but like if you're yeah. you know Do you know who can I,
0: f- what I can and I. <laughs> You know, apathy is one of those things, and, like, I'm reading a really good book, and I've been telling people about reading this book, but it's called Winners Take All uh, by Anand Grit. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I'm not (laughs) going to try. But um, the problem of apathy, I think, like, a huge part of that problem with apathy is that that apathy in the political system and the sense that, you know, what we want isn't being represented by, like, the people we have in power, and we, we don't have faith in the system to change things. That's sort of been, like, you know, concurrently happening with this rise of technology and this idea that you know business is the way to solve things. The way to solve things is to build this new company that solves this problem. Like, you know, we can't trust the government to have these funds because the government is inefficient, the government is bloated, like the government doesn't represent our beliefs properly. Like instead of putting money in government and taxation, we should have private businesses. Like, you know, Bill Gates could solve this problem, but the government can't, right? And I think that it's created this like self-perpetuating cycle where we have this apathy and we don't believe that these things can be accomplished by government. And because of that, we put our attention and our energy and our and our private affairs. And you know, people who want to make a change don't want to become politicians. They want to become CEOs. They want to build companies. And you know, that mm-hmm. like companies inherently are profit making machines. Let's let's be clear about that. Like the primary goal of a company is to make profit for its stakeholders. Like, yes, you know, Google has dramatically changed the way information works and like increase access to things. But at the end of the day, those are externalities like to the primary goal of making money, right? If money doesn't like work, then you wouldn't have a company at all, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's just indicative of this like shift and uh, Anon calls it market world, the shift to thinking in market world, this think shift to thinking and problems in like, you know, terms of win-win, like I'll make profit off this and I'll connect people and I'll make a better society. But like, you know, some things in society are not win-win, they're lose-lose, or like they're lose-win, right? There are real trade-offs we have to make. Like there are real trade-offs in terms of like, who has power, who doesn't have power, who should be allowed to vote, who shouldn't be allowed to vote, you know, like things like that that we have to consider that can't be solved by market forces. Mm -hmm. And we need to actually think about in terms of like human beings and policy and government. And rather than like fixating on the fact that we have this broken system and going to another solution, But actually, like, improving these solutions and going to vote and, like, you know, making the use, making the most of, like, this democracy that we, like, supposedly have. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I I couldn't agree more, honestly. I think once people realize the power that they have in terms of, like, voting and, like, having the ability to actually elect people who represent their beliefs, things can actually change. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah. Definitely encourage everyone to go and vote and, you know, start caring about things that you want to change
2: mm-hmm Should, yeah. what about the because uh, like another economic driver that's kind of I guess China's increasingly kind of adopting it too but, like the whole like idea of that um, military industrial complex right that the US has like that's a huge um, economic driver and realistically looking at it like the the government or the um, the military has been the driver for a lot of innovation that the state sees right like a lot mm. of like technologies that we mm-hmm. take for granted today only exist because um, the military was funding its, uh, its growth. It's like the internet, GPS technologies or cell phones, things of that nature. Yeah. Is that like mm-hmm. an inherently bad thing though? Or is it a necessary evil?
1: Good question. Yeah, honestly, I, I don't think it's a necessary evil. I think, I think that if something is pushing innovation forward, then we should find ways to make that happen, whether or not that be from like the military or whatnot, right? I think I think the problem when it comes to sort of like this complex is that to what degree should we allow them to, you know, have this say in the types of innovation that gets pushed forward, right? It's like, should the military have all say? Like should the military always be the ones who are like pushing this kind these kinds of like new technology forwards, like GPS or the internet and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like if you look at like the pure amount of like funding that like America provides for the military versus like other things, it's 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 outrageous, right? Like we have such a large portion of like public taxpayer money being allocated towards the american military and it's like like i i I, like i want to bring this example up but it's because it's irrelevant but it's like it's like if you look at the response time and how long it took to bring the national guard to minneapolis versus how long it took to actually respond to like like personal protective equipment needs needs for testing things like that there's like a very clear discrepancy in like how much funding the military is getting versus how much funding like other things are getting and so like exactly I think I think it's like we have to decide what degree is right to have the military, like how important should the military really be in terms mm-hmm. of like everything, in terms of pushing innovation forward, in terms of how much of a say they have over the public, things like that. So
0: I agree. And I think also um, the question of like mil- military innovation is, is a very historic question. And what I mean by that is like, you know, when you look at periods of high innovation, they're marked by periods where there was an extreme need of competition. You know, we needed to survive against Russia. We needed to get that bomb first because if Russia got it first, then we'd be fucked, right? Or the race to the
2: moon. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like we needed to
0: get there first. And like, you know, after that, funding completely dried up. Like we haven't made innovation in space until SpaceX came around. For like 20 years in American history, there was nothing, right? And so, you know, I don't think that the military is the way to do that. And I think, you know, we're living in a society where conflict is becoming you know, international conflict to that scale is becoming more and more rare, right? Mm -hmm. We have things like the UN to, like, you know, broker peace across countries, across territories, across societies. And, like, we increasingly live in a global world where trade is important, so we can't just slap sanctions everywhere, you know? And as we become, you know, more of, like, a globalized world, like, that need for military innovation dies down. And I think that's being replaced to a large extent with business innovation and so you know competition in the form of facebook needs to compete against apple so they need to develop this new thing and like things like that and i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing but i do think it has like huge implications for kind of like what we think about um the world of military and its role in in, in our society
2: but like what about the problem yeah. where like i mean it, it's been wrought, like the history's been wrought with plenty of examples where um i i can't remember the preceder to the um the u.n but there was another thing. But League of um, Nations or whatever. I the think. League of Nations, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, that's like, a it's, flop, bro. Yeah. Ta- There's a flop, flop of twenty twenty. Er, plenty of examples. Nineteen fifty or yeah. Yeah, but there have been plenty of examples where countries really don't take that that jurisdiction of this entity seriously, like they don't mm-hmm. really care. And then after a certain point, you know, the other countries that comprise the UN, they don't really step in, um, breach those international borders to, like, for example, like. China, it's always China, honestly. Like China's always up to some Absolutely. sneaky stuff. <laughs> um, but with like the Uyghur camps, um, that was a huge thing. That there's a lot mm-hmm. of outrage about. It's still happening. Nobody's really talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. Like nobody else is going to be stepping in anytime soon, from the looks of it. Um, but I don't know. Just I don't. I don't know if there'll ever be a time where the UN will be looked at as this absolute entity with absolute power. So, um, just reeling it back in one more time. Um, You know, we're running up parts, very valuable time, but it's been a great conversation so far. So, I have one closing question for you. And um, this is going out to the handful of fans that we have right now. (laughs) Um, But if you could rent out a billboard that millions of people would see, and you can cater this either to i don't know students or just the general public it's up to you what message would you put on it
1: can i be honest yes
2: yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah
1: i would put i'd put black lives matter i think i think i think that needs to be heard i think there's if that was the billboard that everyone could see right now at this moment in time i would put that on there and i th- and i say that with like all my heart and, like, everything that I believe in right now, I think there's never been a better time for us to wake up. Respect. Um, rest- I love yeah.
0: it. What a beautiful Respect, way to close yeah. it. Topical, straight to your beliefs, honest, yeah. eloquent. Man, sh- <laughs> how can I continue after that?
2: And this guy's single? What? Oh, my The game God. is rigged. <laughs> Damien, I'm telling you,
0: the game is rigged. If I have to compete What's against a man like this, the game is rigged.
2: Bro, this guy is sweet, too. <laughs> like, what is happening? Yeah, but... Uh, Parth and Fawad thank you guys so much for this incredible conversation today Um, it's been super interesting very wide-ranging and there's a shit ton of value to be had from this conversation
0: absolutely thank you guys yeah thank you any guys finals, so much for any having closing me.
1: thoughts Fawad
2: yeah
0: no just yeah thank you so much for taking the time of your day you know um, this is our first interview with somebody else on this podcast so like it is a little bit shaky and I hope I hope we had a great conversation you know that's that's all we're trying to have on this podcast and like here's some interesting ideas and here's here's some interesting people so thank you for taking the time out
1: of your day and doing this of course of course i had a great time it was awesome meeting you both thank you guys so much for having me on amazing all right all right take care guys cheers take care